Hello and welcome to the Advanced Screening. My name is Justin Corbett and I am joined as always by my regular co-host Tom Kelly. How are you, Tom? Coming to you live from COVID Central. I'm patient zero. Let's go. I, I had a great time in Melbourne, but um, I it's not confirmed that I've got COVID, but I don't think I've ever tested positive on a rat. And I think I've had COVID about three times. So like, I'm just going to call it now. Rats are currently coming back negative. Yeah, at the moment. But like, I, I might, can I get a PCR? I don't know how things work. I honestly like, have no idea where you'd go get a PCR anymore. Just to deviate just really quick. What, hasn't there been some like COVID movies and TV shows? Wasn't that that ha- um, Anne, I was going to say Ham Hathaway. <laughs> Oh, you definitely uh, got COVID. <laughs> like Ham Hathaway was in a movie With, um, where it was like Ch- Effigure or something. Yeah, however you pronounce his name. That, well, let's not butcher it. Yeah, like, they like, uh, they locked down. You should get it right. Yeah, yeah. Was it called Lockdown? Yeah, it was called Lockdown. Um, none of those COVID I'll, movies I'll did well. Except Glass Onion. Ah, it's over glass there doesn't live there. With their three minutes of um, spraying people in masks at the start and then otherwise we'll, really well. We'll have to do a show on COVID content. Um, <laughs> the movies no one wants. Um, <laughs> yeah, good, good. Uh, no news. Um, finally recovered from my week in Melbourne, which was a, a week ago. So maybe I got COVID down there as well. Maybe people should just got, stop going to Melbourne. But like you, you I just didn't... just drank out of a shoe. I did drink out of a shoe in Melbourne, so maybe that was it. <laughs> definitely was not, it. definitely not my new pair of shoes either. Um, it wasn't cordyceps. Look, it wasn't, and thankfully not yet. But ever since the Last of Us started airing, uh, there's been a lot of articles about how uh, this is definitely going to happen, and cordyceps will kill us all. So that's that's nice. Good to know. I'm up for it. Let's do it. Before we talk about the last episode of The Last of Us, um, we had some breaking news today that as a film podcast, we're definitely going to cover because the, the politics of it are rife. But uh, oh yeah, Labor government, Prime Minister Albanese has just spent $368 billion on a few submarines from uh, America and Britain. And as Orcus, a baby. film podcast, <laughs> the AUKUS deal uh, to see some submarines in about 30 years Luckily, we're not a political podcast, so we're not going to talk about that much. Instead, you had the brilliant idea to talk about submarine movies. Tell me more. How good are submarine movies? Because effectively, they're bottle movies in the sense that really controlled setting, good ensemble cast, and a really close quarters acting and action. They're great. As we as we touch on a few submarine movies, I found a constant thread that um, they seem to always have Russians. Are Russians the only people with submarines at the moment? Why are we getting more? Well, I, th- I think Russians are always the eternal baddie, and like the Cold War was great for the submarine brand. You know what I mean? U-boats and stuff like that, um, and and well, Nazis too. So like, ba- general baddies work really well in all sort of scenarios, but it's almost like, well, submarines, we go for the, the generical bad guy. Um, I'm just trying to think of it. And it was uh, under siege was on a boat, not a submarine. Wasn't it? Under siege was a, a big boat, a big cruise liner, a big boat. And then um, I know it's not a submarine movie or it might've had submarines. Cause I don't think I've seen it, but it was, what was the one with, with Rihanna that was based on the board game? What, Battleship. Oh, Battleship. I think there were submarines involved, but that was also big boats. 
but they weren't battling Nazis or German, Nazi Germanys or um, Russians. That it was aliens. It was aliens. Yeah, I think we need we need more aliens on submarines. I think that should be the next. <laughs> that should be the next alien movie. Um, just, I really like that it's it's always Russians, and it has to always be like them as the main characters because otherwise the problem with a submarine movie is that most of the time you can't see the person you're fighting. It's just a yeah. lot of it's just a lot of pings. I think the stalemate, uh, not that the stalwart of the submarine movie is the uh, the sonar man who's got his headphones and he kind of clicks and tells everyone to be quiet. He's like, "Shush, I've got something." And then for the next two to three minutes, the entire movie just devolves into <laughs> just just listening. And to every <laughs> everybody's got to be silent so you don't like. There's a, not a ping or something, but it's a great device within a film. To build suspense is to is forced silence. Ah, oh, when you when you and hear then, that ping, it's like ooh, then they're close. And then two things on top of that: great lighting as well, because then when they go in dark and everything, the red lights and stuff like that on Sean Connery's face, and then also Russians, great uniforms. Got to say, <laughs> really well pressed. And then on top of that, I just would say also in submarine movies, you have to have good voice acting because there's a lot of radio work. A lot of radio work, a lot of stern looks. You need a lot of a lot of strong, strong draw lines and good faces. Um, and also on the practical side, one set super cheap to make. Why don't we get more yes. submarine movies? Like I googled this and I was like, not enough submarine movies. Make them in the volume. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned Sean Connery, which is a good place to do the number one undisputed submarine movie, The Hunt for Red October. I think some people might argue that Das Boot, the 1981 German film, but that's also then been like on a, it's been like an SBS TV show. I don't know if it's German made or what, um, but it's a foreign language. But I've never heard of Das Boot. Ages on SBS and it's a really successful sort of TV show that's the adaptation of the film. Okay. Um, there was a couple others. So I was talking about U-571, which is a German submarine is boarded by disguised American submarines t- trying to capture their Enigma cipher machine. This, this, I don't know what's going on. But I, I remember renting this as like a nine-year-old and being blown away. And then we looked up the cast beforehand. It gets 6.6 on IMDb. And it's got Matthew McConaughey, Bill Paxton, good start. Then it's got Harvey Keitel, Okay, that's a bit of a left-hand turn, but I like it. And then John Bon Jovi is in this movie. Just dipping his toe into the wet waters of submarine films. Yeah, so it's a World War II movie. I'm just going through the the pictures now. It just looks great, and I remember really enjoying it as well. Bill Paxton as well, just like in a uniform as well. I can't remember U571. Like, I remember the name, and anytime you look up, like, 90s to 2000 thrillers you always get the photo of this film which is just like red fucking things everywhere and then a submarine emerging from the depths i have no idea who jonathan mostow is who the director is sorry to jonathan for uh kind of dropping your name there is no one that we know but it's definitely a movie that everyone talked about and matthew mcconaughey in a submarine sure yeah uh, like can we can we do the remake of U five seven one and get McConaughey back? Let's do U five seven two. 
572. He swore he'd never go back down, but duty calls. <laughs> um, yeah, Hunt for Red October I needed to talk about because um, – 88% on Rotten Tomatoes. Like, it's definitely the highest rated uh, submarine film for submarine trash. And it's got Jack Ryan in it with uh, played yeah. by Alec Baldwin. So, like, this is peak 90s thriller if you're pulling from a Jack Ryan novel. Uh, and John McTernan is John the director. Mc- and then John, Mc- John McTernan went Predator, Die Hard, Hunt for Red October. Like... Just sure, why not? Jungle, building, submarine. It's natural he's progression. Just, he's just got pocket aces. Everything's coming out of <laughs> And then Sam Neill's in it as a Russian? Yes. My my favorite thing about this movie is that Sean Connery plays a Russian captain doing his Scottish accent, but then everyone else in his crew, including Sam Neill, are doing their best, worst Russian accent you've ever heard. It's like, why does Sean Connery just get to be Scottish and we accept it and everyone else around him is being Russian kind of? Is it also because, like, thinking about 1990, this is, of course, like post-Bond and stuff, but he's a huge name at that time. So is it almost like he he can get away with it because he's Sean Connery and people are going to see Sean Connery? That's um. That's that was exactly it. People have just accepted yeah. how he speaks, and it's like, oh well, don't even try to make him do a uh, Russian accent. But that's the that's the great one um, for anyone's listening to this and kind of remembering movies and not names. That's the one where he plays a Russian guy with their brand new spanking perfect sub. That's the other thing. Every single one of these submarine movies has a new sub that does something the other subs don't yeah. do. So this one has a sub that runs so quietly that no one in the world will ever be able to hear it. And he essentially turns towards the US and then vanishes and they're like, is he coming here to bomb us and we'll never know? And Jack Ryan, by, played by Alec Baldwin, is like, no, he's going to defect. I have, I have intelligence because I'm an analyst. And like, well, like all Jack Ryan shows and movies, you better get out there and figure it out. And he's like, no, I can't. I'm not, I'm not a field officer. It was a really dashing Alec Baldwin in that sort of role as Jack Ryan too. It was like peak handsomeness. Yes. Um, if I can go my second one quickly because it, it trails off from this one, speaking about accents, my second one was uh, K-19, The Widowmaker. Uh, See, I haven't seen that. 2002. Uh, it's, a again, a Russian nuclear submarine that has a glitch on its maiden voyage and its voyage is maiden because, again, it's a brand new submarine that no one's ever heard of and... The people in charge of this are Harrison Ford and Liam Neeson as his second in command. But because the main characters are on a glitched Russian submarine in this film, Harrison Ford and Liam Neeson are trying to do Russian accents and they cannot. They and can't it's do brilliant. it. It's so good. It's just like, yeah, we have to make a movie about Russians as the main characters. So this time, not like that shitty Hunt for Red October, Sean Connery. This time they're going to do Russian accents and it's going to be good and it is not. The movie's good, but the accents are not. Can Harrison Ford pull it off? No. Uh, he he commits the whole time though, so good for him. Liam Neeson uh, it, it vanishes after about two scenes. I also find that Liam Neeson just now in movies just doesn't care and he's just like, I'm playing Liam Neeson and that's my voice. Yeah, he's got he's got his career down pat. The commuter, the the flight attendant. Well, I just don't think he cares. It's just like he's just taking the paycheck. 
Yeah, I mean, at his age, if he can still convincingly beat people up and take that paycheck, then good for him. Yeah, that's a fair point. Um, the other one, I haven't seen Crimson Tide, but it's always sort of comes up as a big thing. Have Have you seen it? I think I would have watched it like 20 years ago, but Denzel and Gene Hackman? Yes, that's it. Yeah. That that that's one that's one of the rare ones where they're actually um Americans playing Americans instead of Russians. Um and Gene Hackman starts to go crazy and so Denzel tries to like stage a mutiny to stop him from like launching warheads and starting World War Three. Oh, that's right. I think I have seen this. Yeah. So yet yet again, it's uh, the, I feel like they don't make enough submarine movies because the stories all seem to be the same. Now that we're talking about them out loud, it's like defectors or crazy captains in brand new style submarines that can start World War Three. It's like, okay, yep, cool. Put some more people in a sub. Let's watch it again. They've all been pretty good. Yeah, I, I suppose that is the problem: is that they are rote, but they are they're formulaic, but it works. Yes, as well. Um, a couple of the ones that I wanted to talk about was Black Sea, which is a bit different where it's not war, but the whole idea is these are English and Russian sort of mariners and they've got an old submarine to go to the Black Sea to find this uh, Nazi U-boat with full of Nazi gold and it's got uh, Jude Law and Ben Mendelsohn in it. Um, I've watched it when it came out, but I haven't watched it since and that was all right. I didn't mind that. Um, and the other one was um, was it Apple TV's Greyhound? Yep, Tom Hanks. That was that was great because there was the Nazi. Sorry, my dog is just biting my hand. Um, so if you hear that on the mic, it's Flip's just hanging out. Flip, um, Flip. <laughs> um, I don't think he'd go do well in a submarine though. Um, well, but uh, I think they he calls it the is it the Wolf? I can't remember the characters' names in Greyhound, but it was so enjoyable. It was like a tight 85 minutes or so. I'm just looking at the times now. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it was a bit longer. No, no, it wasn't uh, long. It was short, but it was really good. It was the best thing I've seen Tom Hanks be in in like a decade. And it's sort of back in the sort of positions where we really like Nabi, where it's almost like he's on an island or he's in a spaceship or he's on a boat. You know, that's the Tom Hanks that I'm here for. I um I can't really remember Greyhound and I've never seen Black Sea, but as you were talking, I looked up Black Sea and now I really want to watch it. It's got 8% on Rotten Tomatoes. It's got Jude Law. I think you'd really like it. But also, if people are looking for a movie, Greyhound is great. It is so good. Um, I'm not just talking about it just because it's a submarine movie. I was so <laughs> surprised when I saw it. And it was almost like this is easily in my top 10 movies of the year. And I think not a lot of people saw it because it was peak pandemic. So it was lockdown and Apple TV had just started as a platform. And I think mm. it was one of their first movies that came out. But quality would go back for sure. And a really tight cast. I think Chet Hanks, Tom's son, is in it as well. Oh, no. Oh, wait. Is Chet the good one or the bad one? No, nah, Chet's the bad one. Oh, no. Um, but then um, Stephen Graham, he's like the ultimate like UK, that guy, he's been in pretty much everything. Um, always plays like a Guy, Rich, uh, guy Ritchie gangster sort of thing. Um, and he's like Tom Hanks offsider in it. So good. So oh, it's based on, a, based on a true story? Does that make a difference for you? I mean, it, when, when you read the log line, uh, Tom Hanks is playing a guy who needs to lead a convoy across the Atlantic during the war 
Uh, it's his first ever wartime mission, but finds himself embroiled in what would become to be known the longest and most complex naval battle in history. So, like, knowing knowing that it's based on a true story, when you put true story on that logline, that pulls me in. That sounds so cool. Like, this guy who's never led a war mission before in his life is now yeah. caught in what would become the most complex and longest maritime battle in history. Cool. Amazing. I'm in. Just going back over it, I'm just reading the Wikipedia now. So it, Tom Hanks doesn't command a submarine. He commands a, a, a destroyer, which is going up against Russian U-boats over like a crossing of the Atlantic where they're trying to get like supplies to the war front from the United States to the UK and Europe. To deviate from the, the themes of every single one of these uh, uh, submarine movies, um, I'm going to drop in down Periscope. As uh, yes, 1996 film starring Kelsey Grammer. Yeah, like Airplane. It's got Rob Schneider, Lauren Holly, Bruce Dern. It's a Police Academy sort of stripes sort of thing going on. Yeah, a uh, put in command of an old and junk submarine by untrained Navy misfits to prove his worth, and they end up winning. Uh, it's yeah, Airplane, Police Academy, spoof movie. I haven't seen that in like 20 years, but just... Um, we should watch it soon. Like 15 years, but I remember as a kid thinking that it was like the funniest movie that was ever made. But I also it's thought that of Police Academy and I haven't watched those in a long time either. It's probably aged terribly, but I sort of <laughs> want to go back. I think the premise is that it's war games, right? So the whole idea, it's not actual war, but it's like yeah. with it, within the military itself. I'm pretty sure there's distinct memories as a as a young teenager of um, the fact that Lauren Holly is the only female on the submarine and the first female put on a submarine. And then so like every scene she's in, someone's like leering at her and trying to have sex with her or something. So yeah, maybe not age the best, but sure. <laughs> oh. Times have changed, obviously. And then uh, two TV shows just in case people are listening to this and want actual recommendations. I think we talked about this once was um, Vigil, the British TV show. Um, oh, yeah. Set From on the, the submarine. Of... Uh, line of Duty. The... Yes, thank you. Yeah, where essentially there's a murder on board a submarine, so a detective with claustrophobia uh, gets put on the submarine and then they get engaged in warfare while she's on it. Um, so she's essentially claustrophobic trying to solve a murder on a submarine that's engaged in some kind of stealth warfare. And it's only, it's British. It's only six episodes, like an hour per rep. Um, that was an awesome show last year. And then and it pretty much had half the cast of line of duty in it as well. Yeah. It's line of duty and half the cast of sex education as well. It's just like all the best actors in Britain just coming together to make a pretty cool tight submarine thriller. They went, they went in two directions. One did like, they did Vigil, and then there was the other one where it was Kate from Line and Judy, and it was, she was the bomb squad in London. I yes, remember it. trigger point. I didn't, that's it. I didn't finish it, but I really enjoyed it. I think I didn't finish it because I didn't, I didn't continue my Stan subscription. I just, <laughs> as, as our very first podcast that would suggest, Stan is the one to cut. And then the yeah. last one was, of course, I can't do a submarine thing without talking about your favorite show, which you laugh at me every time I mention is um, Yakimo's S254. <laughs> <laughs> I've, got, I've got a real Yakimo's agenda here, which is mixed language European people stuck on a sub underwater when 
the earth essentially ends and the sun starts killing people. And so luckily they have a sub and they get her out and they have to learn how to survive while the world's Maybe ending. You need, wouldn't that be good if it was like they did that, but it, but it was like Das Boot, where it's almost like it's the Nazis are still going around. <laughs> <laughs> like oh, man, that like, wouldn't be um, good, would it? So, so th- here's my pitch. So it's like apocalyptic, but it's Nazis. So like, have you seen like Iron Sky where it's like the Nazis are on the mood and now they're coming for us? No. So that, that was I know like what you're talking about. Movie. Yeah, it was like a. I think a, a, the Australia Council might have given funding for it because I think it was shot here. Um, but that was the whole B movie plot. Can we bring back like a Das Boot? But it's in the future, and it's from the sun, but it's Nazis. <laughs> so um, instead, it's Nazis only that have survived underwater, and then so they pop up. But the whole idea, the subs have been going since the 40s. <laughs> so they come out, they've like a little bit of light cannibalism here and there. They've had to survive. But they've, they've created their own colonies down there sort of thing. And the whole idea is they've been running dark since like 44. Oh, you're really writing something here. Don't give your ideas away for free. <laughs> this is a big thing. You know what I mean? Like they, like they, they didn't realize the war is over. <laughs> oh, that's pretty good. I'm just jotting notes down as we go. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, all right, so that was our that was our submarine corner in honor of Albo's $360 million deal to get some more subs. I do want to say about that, because I was talking to you, the two movies that have been set in San Diego where their announcement was, where it was like these pristine blue skies on the naval base, and it's almost like two movies are set in San Diego. One is Anchorman, and the other one is Top Gun. And it looked very Top Gun with Joe Biden's aviators. And uh, we landed, Joe Biden's definitely a Top Gun guy. Um, He rocks his aviators and his flight vest and probably wishes he could get in a jet every second day of the week. Albo, we're not sure. I think he'd be an anchorman, but... I think Albo is pretty dad core. Um, So let's take a quick break and then we'll jump into our Oscars and Last of Us. All right, and welcome back. We are done with our submarine chat. Let's get into the Oscars, which aired uh, on Monday in Australia. Uh, I watched it in the background, and you watched the live tweets and the live scrolls. I worked. I went to work and did work on Monday, like most people. I responded to emails while it was on the TV behind me, uh, and it was... I absolutely love the film Everything Everywhere All at Once. It's swept. It's like one of the first films to win five above-the-line Oscars, which means like everything that isn't the technical stuff. But, my God, the ceremony was boring. And we talked about it last week um, but eventually cut it uh, that are the Oscars even important anymore? And I kind of fought for the idea that they are because like it's good to have award shows and it gives these films a bit more kind of press and stuff like that. Uh, But after watching the ceremony on Monday, or at least having it on, it was a a slog. It was so slow. It wasn't funny. Um, I mean, Jimmy Kimmel on his show is okay, but in front of that audience, it just felt like the most awkward thing I'd watched in a very, very long time. It's a hard audience to work. And it's also, from what I was reading and listening to about, is that, not a lot of big names actually went. Unless you're nominated, you don't go. And it's almost like 
gone are the days where Jack Nicholson's in the front row looking fucking snarky in sunglasses. And that's what we sort of grew up in. That's almost like that's the sort of pageantry of the Oscars. And now it's almost like whatever. And it's also because of the reporting of award shows. Like we understand what's happening. Like the BAFTAs is sort of not necessarily telecast, but it's read about. You know that who's won the BAFTAs and stuff like that. That it's almost like the reporting is too long around it. Um, yeah, it's it's right. It's like SAG Awards, Directors Guild Awards, um, Screenwriting Awards, Golden Globes, BAFTAs, all these things come out so long. It's like six months of award shows to the point that like once it actually gets to the Oscars, there's very little to kind of surprise you anymore. And I think that's what we were talking about last week. We did cut it, but the whole idea is like, well, what if Top Gun won? And it's we both knew that Top Gun can't win and it's not going to win either. But could you imagine the shock and awe of it? It was almost like Tom Cruise on the stage with it. That would have been great. But he didn't even turn up. No, because he didn't. He knew that they couldn't win, so it was almost like, why bother? Why am I going to waste my time and sit through um, Scientology jokes? I suppose. Yeah, and um, Denzel uh, and Spike Lee. Film were filmed at a basketball game at a Lakers game instead of going to the Oscars, just like <laughs> high fiving in the front row and having a, like a good time drinking beer instead of getting in suits and going to the Oscars. Like he's not nominated, but he's still one of the biggest stars in the world. He's just like oh, fuck this. I'd rather go watch some basketball. Do you ever feel like you have to go to like a work function and you think it's fun, and then you've gone to it and you're on the way home? And it's almost like I just should have gone to the pub with mates or just gone home because that was not worth it for the free booze. That was not the time I spent. And I think that kind of seems like what people are doing now for the Oscars. It's funny. I was reading an article to kind of speak about the viewership and all these things were like, yay, um, Oscars, uh, 12% bump on last year, 18.7 million, which is funny because 18.7 million is like incredible levels. It's more than any other TV show gets, but it's still, even though with the 12% bump, it's still the third lowest rating ever the um, third lowest viewed. So I just don't think people care anymore. Maybe if they, they did some things and like changed it up a bit and did more fun stuff and just like we're a bit more free with it. But I mean, what, what people would watch is the Golden Globes just without all the corruption, probably. Drunk celebrities like having fun. It was a popular award show when Ricky Gervais was sort of hosting it as well. Um Thoughts on winners? So I think I'm stoked that Everything Everywhere All at Once won. Um, I love that film. It's pretty divisive, but when you go to the movies, like it's it's fun and emotional and a lot of it's hard to track, but you got, I think I said to you after you watch it, you got to just let it wash over you. Hmm. Just sit there and soak in the action and the visuals and just the incredible directing and editing. They won They won for directing, they won for editing, they won for screenwriting, they won for best picture, and they won lead actress and supporting actor and supporting actress. So six, six of the top. I thought the film from a technical standpoint with the budget that it has, it's pretty amazing what they've been able to do with it. And that the filmmaking sort of approaches they've been able to take, and this also love of cinema that's embedded within it, that's all playing with these sort of notions of genre and sort of 
tropes that we've often seen within films and sort of reinventing them or sort of using them as sort of um, pastiche. But um, I, I, I don't think I was blown away by it. And I was sort of surprised that it did win Best Picture. But at the same time, not. I was just more like, is that a bit of a weak year that has sweeped it so emphatically? Like this is not other years when it's done such a sweep where, oh, like it's clearly that's going to be the film. Does that make sense? Yeah, it was um, a few, it was kind of about six months ago. So halfway, it it came out literally a year ago. So kind of halfway through its run where it was like, yeah, this film's great and it might win something like editing, maybe screenwriting because it's so balls to the wall. But no one thought it was going to get a best picture. Contest. Yeah, yeah, contest. And then it just kind of kept winning all these. And this is what we're talking about. It kept winning all these other awards where if the Oscars was still the most important thing ever and it went first, everything, everywhere, all at once probably wouldn't have won. But if it did, it would have been the biggest moment in history. It would have been such a big deal that this kind of weird, fucked up, unique film um, won the Oscar. But because it went this last. interesting take on like Asian martial arts yeah. in American cinema where it's not looking at it from a, um, a crouching tiger, hidden dragon sort of thing. It's looking at it from a contemporary American-Asian sort of art, like filmmaking yeah. where that, that's something completely different. And it made it feel, and that kind of mashup made it feel really unique. But because it went last and it won all these other awards in the lead up, you kind of sacrifice the awesome impact and surprise of it winning the Oscar because it's already won all these other awards. But then again, if it had gone first, maybe it wouldn't have won the Oscar. So it's kind of like a, a weighing up of things. Um, but if you haven't seen it, this, uh, oh, well, we cut it last week, but yeah, go watch that movie. Um, Michelle Yeoh, I think, I think she deserved it. I know you think it should have gone to Lydia Tarr herself, Kate Blanchett. Kate Blanchett, our Kate. Our Kate, I feel bad for trainer. Um, Kehi Kwan as best supporting, literally won every single award ceremony that has been on for the last six months. He was always going to win it and is I brilliant. that moment with him and Harrison Ford at the end was actually, that was the thing that felt like the most shared thing of the Oscars where it was this um, reunion of um, Indiana Jones. Yeah, that was pretty... That was pretty cool that um, he ran up and, like, they pointed at each other from across the thing and gave each other, like, this really big hug. That was probably the best moment. Um, Second, maybe only to Hugh Grant calling himself a scrotum. Um, Hugh Grant didn't give a fuck, but wasn't that sort of symbolic of the whole thing where it's almost like, I don't really want to be here. Yeah, the um, it's done the rounds all over the internet, but him doing the red carpet chat and essentially just being like, yeah, I don't know. I don't care. And, and how the interviewer didn't get when he was talking about Vanity Fair wasn't the actual Vanity Fair party, but the actual concept of Vanity Fair. Yeah, this is a Vanity Fair. And she's like, it is, isn't it? Oh, my God. <laughs> I was like, no, no, he's not talking about the Vanity Fair party. God, aren't you looking forward to the party? <laughs> it's like, no, I'm going to go home. I'm a six, mid-60s British man. I'm not going to a party. Did you enjoy Glass Onion and being in that? Uh, I, I don't. Uh, uh, I was there for two scenes, so I don't really remember. Um, but it was fun, wasn't it? Yeah, it was all right. It was all right. <laughs> um, K, yeah, Kei Kwan went in. Um, uh, did you see The Whale at all? I haven't seen it. No. 
and to be honest, I didn't have, I had an opportunity to go see it and it didn't take me. And I was almost like, no, I'd rather spend my money on something else. Yeah, the the reviews of that have been like pretty bad. So I have no rush or intention to go see it. But obviously, Brendan Fazier is kind of just on a redemption tour. So I think he was always going to win it. What did you think of this whole sort of like comeback of Brendan Fraser? I'm a bit like, I don't care. I Not that I've got a bad thing about Brendan Fraser. Like how good's The Mummy, right? The 1999 sort of action adventure movie. But um, like, so what? That's how I feel. Maybe like I'm a Grinch with that though. No, no. It was, it was kind of like, um, it was great, but only because he's a really nice guy, like who he is as a person, as opposed to the movie being good or anything like that. It just seems like he's one of the nicest people in Hollywood. So if he gets to go on this big redemption tour and everyone cheers him and loves him for it, that's really, really good. I saw a really funny thing though, where it was like the 19 to 21 year old cast of the white Lotus saw Brendan Fazier after he won the BAFTA, I think. And they were like, oh, my God, I'm so proud of you. I'm just so proud of everything you've done. Oh, it's so good of you. It's like, who the fuck are you? Well, Brandon Fraser's been around for 25 for years. 25 years. <laughs> Haven't you seen The Mummy? Have you seen The Mummy? Like, oh, I'm so proud of everything you've done. And I think right. I think somebody commented and said, like, this is really his Make-A-Wish Foundation trip, isn't it? <laughs> I've got to watch... Down Periscope and then the mummy while I'm home on COVID. <laughs> Kelsey Grammer and Brendan Fraser. Um, if you, knowing, knowing the winners, if you had to steal an award off one person and give it to someone else, who would it be and why? Besides Kate. I think besides um, Kate. Hard one. I think it would be the Brendan Fr- Fraser for Colin Farrell. I think that's where I would lean to like... I know that neither of us were that warm on Banshees, but I think we both acknowledge that Colin Farrell's performance in it is great. I think we had some questions about the actual direction of the movie or maybe some of the some of the plot lines and stuff like that. But I think we both acknowledged that Colin Farrell's doing some really great work in that. And um, oh, who was his co-star? Sorry, I just, uh, Brendan Gleeson. Both of them were phenomenal within that, even though like we had questions about what is this film actually about, but the performances were fantastic. And I, I think Colin, Colin Farrell's done a really interesting body of work, like post-peak body of work over the past decade. Um, and I would just really like to see that sort of acknowledge what he's been doing there with things like the walrus and stuff. Yeah. I... And the, the hunt for the sacred deer. Yeah, his his performance in Banshees like is the only thing that might have pushed that into like a decent movie for me. Um, there were bits of it that it was so grim and so weird, and the bits that made it half a good movie were the kind of really awkward, weird, funny bits um, from Colin Farrell. So yeah, I can't add anything else to that. The only other person I was going to say was. Um, Maybe switching out uh, Jamie Lee Curtis for Angela Bassett in Wakanda Forever because I'm a Kevin Feige stan and I love him. And um, one, of the only, one of the only good Marvel movies last year was Wakanda Forever and Angela Bassett was giving a million percent in that movie and really deserved to win. 
Um, and Jamie Lee Curtis is great and we, and we love her and she seems like a really fun person, but yeah. And she's good in the movie. She's good in everything ever all at once, but didn't really kind of do anything else beyond. Did you see Angela Bassett's reaction though? I did. That's the reaction of a woman who knows she should have won the award and I'm with her. (laughs) That was a big one. Um, other than that, yeah, not much else. Hey, it's it's the Oscars. It's done. Nobody really cares. It's just it's just over. Happy for everything ever all at once. Um, the Daniels, Daniel Scheinhart and Daniel Kwan seem like the coolest people ever. So good for them and I hope they make more oh, weird shit. And I don't have a problem with acknowledging them as victory. I just think maybe from a, a film perspective, it might have been more of a weaker year than past years. I'm not trying to discredit them as the best as the best picture of the year. It was more just saying, I think, that they had an overwhelming victory that maybe that talked more about the year as a whole rather than uh, de- trying to discredit the film. Yeah, it's interesting. I think um, in other years, maybe not recent years, Oscars have been weak for a little while, but it might have got like a, a write-in or an edit-in or a supporting act for Kehi Kwan, but maybe not everything that it got. And this year it just swept, unlike anything that's ever swept before. Yeah. Um, so that's interesting. Um, let's jump on to last of us. The season is wrapped. The show that started this podcast, um, best show of the last few years. Give me your top line thoughts on the final episode. Oh, I loved it. I, I'm more conflicted about it now that I've finished the TV series than I was about the game, which I think is interesting because the game, you're always viewing it from a first person perspective where the television show, you're stepping back from it. Further, you no longer have that sort of Joel as your avatar, um, and I, I'm I'm not conflicted about the actual show, but I'm conflicted about the story and the plot lines and the moral decisions that went on with it. Do you want to sort of? You're always better than summaries. Do you want to sort of give us like the top line thirty seconds? <laughs> you don't want to do your summary where you read out the entire script for the episode again, like you did last week. <laughs> I can I can open <laughs> Wikipedia if you'd prefer. I could well I'll I'll do it. I'll do it. No, so no, pretty no. much Ellie No no I'm doing it. Shut up. I'm doing it. So Ellie is uh struggling to process the events of the previous episode where she had to kill old mate, sort of cannibal pedophile. Um and then the whole idea is Joel is trying to console her and trying to sort of get Ellie Spark back. But the only thing that gives Ellie Spark back is the one thing that everybody gives their spark back. A fucking giraffe. How good are giraffes? <laughs> um, Salt Lake City Zoo is now free range. Um, it's also that moment with the giraffe is one of the best moments from the game itself. So I'm really pleased that they nailed that. Then the whole idea is they finally get to Salt Lake City. They have to get taken by the fireflies. They get knocked out because that's what fireflies do. Um, and then the whole premise is that they're going to do surgery on Ellie because there's a potential cure. And the whole idea is what happens is that when the cordyceps come into contact with Ellie, they read that as cordyceps, so they don't try and get in on it, so to speak. Um, and so the whole idea is, can they then replicate that for humans in a antidote of some kind? Yeah, they kind of. It's kind of like she's uh, pre-infected by the cordyceps. Well, it's like COVID. You just got to get have a little bit of it, not all of it. <laughs> just a little, a few of the bumps. Yeah. And so then the whole idea is to actually be able to, to generate an antidote, they actually have to kill Ellie. 
um, in surgery, but they obviously, they're not going to tell Ellie that, but I think Ellie sort of knows where she's going towards. I think that's somewhat suggested and it does so in the game too. And then when Joel actually finds out because Marlene is back from episode one and then the whole idea is, well, Joel can't let go. This is his surrogate daughter now. Like, and we opened up in the start of the series with the whole idea with his daughter dying for this idea of like trying to save humanity and control the infection, so to speak. And then this is Joel being almost like not again. And this is where the moral decision-making comes in where it's the trolley thing. And just to do the shorthand train is coming down the tracks. You can move the train onto another line of tracks. But the thing is there's one person on one end and then the other side will derail the train. Do you derail the train to save the one person? and potentially kill everybody else in the train? Or do you let that train keep on running on the track and run over that one person? And that's the decision that Joel comes to. And Joel, this is not a normal decision. Joel is looking at it as a father and he's almost like, nobody's fucking touching her. You brought up right at the top and good summary. You, you did it. Um, <laughs> you brought up right at the top. One of the first questions, um, not to always be like, what about the game? Is how different this would have been playing the game because you've spent yeah. 10 uh, hours running around as Joel killing infected and other people to survive. And so when you get to this point in the game, which pretty much mirrors exactly what happens in the show, you've been this man killing people for ages. So it's kind of like, Oh, more people are trying to kill me. Bang, 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 fun, fun, fun. Whereas the way they filmed it in the show and the way they kind of justified it, where it's like, the fireflies from everything we've been told for nine hours are the good guys. They're trying to fight against fascist Nazi Fedra. So they're here. They're also trying yeah. to essentially save the world. Uh, the one mistake they made was not giving Ellie the choice because one of the good arguments I think Marlene made at the end was, you know, that Ellie would want to do this. And I think Joel knows that. And I think the answer is yes, she would. All they needed to do was put them both in a room and say, this is what we need to do. Do you want to do it, Ellie? She'd probably say yes and tell Joel to fuck off if he tried to stop it. So the one mistake they made was doing it against her will. But other than that, they're essentially the good guys and filming it the way they did with kind of, it felt a little video gamey, but you were also detached from Joel kind of first. watching him from different angles and watching his feet. And um yeah, I've read so many articles in the last couple of days that have been like 10 years later, the discourse starts again. Was Joel right? Was Joel wrong? Kind of thing. And Well, I think this is the point of the show that everybody's morally ambiguous. That in the apocalypse, people do what they need to do to survive. Fedra are fascists. Um, the Fireflies t play God and the take, take things into their own hands sort of thing. Joel kills people because that's the only thing he knows how to do. Um, Ellie's going to be telling you to fuck off regardless of who you are. and Which means she's a great leader, of course. We oh, of course, because of, of course. exactly. If you swear at everybody in the room, you think, wow, what potential. <laughs> I see that every day in education. <laughs> um, but the whole idea, everybody is compromised. And that that sort of shows up a mirror to society as well, where it's almost like, well, we're not going to say that we're all morally compromised, but we all make compromises morally or ethically in our lives. And I think that's sort of what we're looking at here. Um, Do you think, uh, I wanted to ask you, um, this was weirdly and kind of really bucking against 
current TV trends, HBO usually always has 10 episodes. This was only nine, and the ninth being the season finale was the shortest episode of the season. Once you take out uh, opening credits and closing credits, I think it would have probably only been about 38 minutes, which is insane when you think... Um, the, the Bill and Frank episode, we've already talked about one of the great episodes of TV. That was an hour and 15 minutes. So this was this was half an hour less, more than half an hour less. As a season finale, what do you kind of make of that? I know it was kind of leading to a point that the video game essentially finishes at. I think that picks up on the game. The actually ending in the game and when you're actually in Salt Lake City is actually super abrupt. And then the whole idea, the game pretty much finishes with Joel and Ellie in the car. It's not going back to Jackson. That's sort of an extended sort of um, epilogue in some ways. So for me, it was almost like there was beat for beat for beat and it was over. And it was almost like that's exactly how it played out in the game. It was sort of shocking how quickly it ended and how abrupt it came to a head with Joel. So for that, that played out true. What I felt though from watching it and because I was looking from a different perspective that what Joel's actions were doing where it's almost like in the game, you're like, well, Joel's the hero. He's fucking saving Ellie. We're here. It's a lot more ambiguous. It's a, it's a lot more like, I'm really not sure. And the camera lingers on the people who have died where the game does not do that. They're, they are just casualties yeah. on the way and you can walk past and the camera labors on these people. And the whole idea is they are shot and then Joel is pretty much executing guys in those corridors. And it's they're already down. They're not going anywhere. But the whole idea is they're crawling. Is the T-1000. He's, he's um, Terminator just essentially crawling through. Not crawling. Everyone else is crawling around. He's just like slowly, stoically storming through dozens of quote-unquote good guys. Um, it makes me think, because I'm going to be a father soon, and what um, Neil Druckmann and Craig Mazin have talked about before is this whole idea of how our relationship is shaped and how our reading of the world and our interpretation of events and priorities completely alter and change because of that fact and that it's instinctual. And the whole idea is like Joel is doing what any parent would do, where if somebody doesn't have a child, they might be almost like, I don't know how I feel about this. But a parent would be almost like, that's just what you would do. So I think that moral co- contradiction will split audiences and interpretations, but I think it's wonderful that it does that. It's not the conclusive sort of everything's tied up really nicely. It's ugly. It's you've got to get in the mire. You've got to unpack it. And it's not a particularly nice feeling and it's c- quite confronting from an audience. But I love that Craig Mason and, and Neil Druckmann went there with that exactly in the same way that the game did too. And I think that's why the game is so well-loved because it's questioning of these ideas of moral decisions and not afraid to confront audiences with um, awkward or uncompromising storytelling. Yeah, I think that's probably why we can kind of start to wrap up and essentially be like one of the best shows of the year so far. Um, I did have one nitpick and it's like the first nitpick of the entire series I fucking hate when shows do this or movies where someone says to someone else, I need you to go on this special mission and take this person or this package somewhere and get them there because you're the only one that can do it. And then when they get there, you're the courier. But then when they get there, 
person A who told him to do it is there as well. Yeah. So I hate that. And when Marlene turns up, when Joel wakes up at the exact location he was trying to get to, and this is Marlene from episode one who told him to take Ellie, and she's like, oh, I tell you what, we crossed that country and it killed half our men doing it. I almost died myself several times, but you made it on your own. I'm like, why the fuck didn't you just take Ellie? Clearly you made it and half your people made it. Why didn't you take her in the first place? What's the point of the fucking fireflies? Mind you, I know. the fireflies are now gone. This is it. They're over. The they're fuck, done. They're not coming back season two. I can tell you that right now. We're going to get something else, something different. Something and Interesting. Maybe, something and maybe a bit more vengeful. I, um, I'm looking forward to, I mean, we're going to have to wait a year now for season two because they really, I, I loved how they left it where it's essentially Joel's story holds no weight with Ellie. She's way too smart. She's just like, tell me, swear to me. And he swears, but you just see in her face like, eh, I don't know. So the cracks are showing. Well, Ellie knows, but it's also the lies that we tell ourselves in the sense of like, how can I live with this? That that scene, I feel, is drawing upon something that happens in the second game, but it acts as a flashback, sort of this in-between time between game one and game two, and it's these in-between years where Ellie sort of runs off and she goes back to Salt Lake City and trying to figure out what happens. And I think a lot of the dialogue and the idea of that discussion is being copied from that sort of flashback into that um, epilogue. I reckon we might get that just as a kind of wrap up uh, looking ahead. Um, I'm not sure if you've read this week that they're essentially doing two more seasons. So there's only one more game, but they're doing two more seasons and it's going to be like a big deviation, a lot of flashbacks, a lot of side quests, a lot of bits and pieces to kind of really flesh out the world. Um, and for people who turned up expecting a, um, a zombie show and got a human drama instead, uh, apparently exponentially more zombies in season two. There, there is going to be more, but I think the whole idea is The Last of Us isn't about the zombies or cordyceps. It's like, who's the last decent people left? The last of us, get it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, we can wrap it up there. Let's uh, Next week, let's do um, – this is the first time we've ever done a preview for our next show. Uh, we'll talk about Succession and Yellow Jackets because they're both coming back sure. uh, the end of next week. So let's hit those. Um, Succession, quite possibly the most popular drama of the last 10 years. And Yellow Jackets, one of the really great but I think pretty unseen dramas. Um, I think like what it's doing, entirely different, very, very different show, but the way it's being made is up there with some of the best TV shows made. But particularly here in Australia on Paramount Plus, I don't think anybody's watching it. So I'd love to talk about it next week. I've kept it. I also want to next week have a massive bitch about The Mandalorian. Oh, have you watched tonight's episode? I did. Um, we'll, we'll talk about let's it. Let's save like, it. Let's save it. I yeah. like the show. I don't like Dave Filoni. Oh, interesting. Put a peg in it. Radio. All right. Good talking to you. Thank you, everyone. We'll see you next week. Adios.